From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. My first question to you is, what's your name? Magnus Genioso. Mm-hmm. And was that the name you were born with? It is the name that I chose. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio incognito we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Do I know you? No. You don't know me. Nothing is more intriguing than anonymity. You're really pushing hard on this, Gwen. You're trying to stoke the flames of controversy, and I'm not playing along with these games. I hate not knowing. But at the same time, I love not knowing. It's a sweet agony, like an unscratchable itch. Today on ReSound, Things Anonymous, from a young man who surreptitiously recorded every single person he talked to for years, to the hacktivist group calling themselves, wait for it, Anonymous, and this man of mystery. Haven't you ever wanted to be a superhero, Gwen? That voice you just heard was that of Magnus Genioso, obviously not his real name, from the anonymous collective Mad Genius. Now, we don't really know who Mad Genius is, but we do know what they do. They document major news events. Not the way a reporter might, using facts, figures, interviews, etc. No. Mad Genius only uses elements from the Internet. Everything from standard media coverage to personal YouTube confessionals. Then they manipulate all that material and turn it into a song. You'll see what I mean. We're going to play a couple of these songs for you now. The first revisits the 2012 shooting of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin in Florida. It's called Someone Screaming Outside. Hey, we've had some break-ins in my neighborhood, and there's a real suspicious guy... He's got his hand in his waistband. Are you following him? Yeah. Okay, we don't need you to do that. Okay. Oh, they always get away. This is 911. Correct? Correct. Someone's out there with a flashlight. The flashlight. He's behind my house. Where at? Is he right outside? Right outside our house. Pouring rain, why would they be outside? White, black, or Hispanic when you saw him? Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't tell. There's a black guy standing over him with a white t-shirt. They're wrestling right in the back of my porch. Wrestling with everybody. I don't want to go out there, I don't know what's going on. I can open my window and hear it. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh, 
That was Someone Screaming Outside by Mad Genius. Our next Mad Genius song was inspired by another major news event of 2012. It's one man's story of surviving Hurricane Sandy. Here is The Adventures of Hurricane Mike. I'm gonna try my best to survive. 
The Adventures of Hurricane Mike by Mad Genius. Despite all the secrecy surrounding the collective, we got someone from Mad Genius to talk to us on the phone. He goes by the name Magnus Genioso, and that's the voice you heard at the top of the show. He's altered his voice to maintain complete secrecy, but he joins us now to explain more about this very mysterious entity. Magnus Genioso, welcome to ReSound. So, in a nutshell, what exactly is Mad Genius? Mad Genius is an anonymous collective of radio and audio and media geeks taking found sounds and building them into pop songs and multimedia. That's what we do. And we do it in ways that are evocative and suggestive and emotional and and fun. And And we're Gwen's favorite new band. So a lot of the pieces that you hear in this series that we've done come from a collection of samples that people have given to us because we've expressed to them that we're interested in doing this topic, whether it be Hurricane Sandy or the shooting in Newtown. Um, A good example is the the Hurricane Mike piece. Mm -hmm. The beat there was constructed entirely of sounds from Hurricane Sandy. The actual kick drum beat is wind hitting the diaphragm of a microphone, the snare is a transformer on a telephone pole blowing up. And we thought that that sample was so neat that we would just turn around and send that sample out free for other people to use. And why is the anonymity such an important part of it? I mean, why can't I know who you are? The reason for the anonymity, um, initially when the project started out, we all kind of wanted to be superheroes. Haven't you ever wanted to be a superhero, Gwen? 
It's of pretty course. awesome. It's pretty awesome. Gwen, during the day, is a host of a show called Resound. And people like it. It's a good radio show. But at night, Gwen could be a member of Mad Genius, where she explores the outer limits of what broadcasting could sound like. A lot of our heroes in music had pseudonyms that they worked under. And the reason for them was mostly legal. These are samples that they took from other people, and for us that's kind of true too. By using a pseudonym, we kind of eliminate our trace a little bit. Is your work journalism, music, social commentary, or other? In which case, what would the other be? Our work exists at the nexus of all those things. It is journalism in the fact that we are documenting something. It is media critique in that we are, by, by choosing to present things the way we are, we are making a, a critique of how the general media portrays things, like Trayvon Martin's story, for example. It, it's also at the nexus of music because we are, in a sense, sort of making a pop song, so we are making something that's accessible. And, and hopefully that nexus is a very fun place to be standing in. That was Magnus Genioso of Mad Genius. Hear more songs from their series 2012, A Year in Your Ear, find out how you can submit sounds and samples to Mad Genius, and read their manifesto at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Dear Internet, Anonymous would like to draw your attention to recent activity in the United States Congress. We do it because it is just. We do it because it is right. We do it because we are anonymous. We are legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. The online group known as Anonymous has no leaders, no rules, no rights, no wrongs, and no public face. Yet they've made headlines around the world as hacktivists, fighting for the freedom of information and against censorship, the Church of Scientology, and homophobia among other things. Their actions have not been without controversy, but their influence can't be denied. In 2012, Anonymous even made it to Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people. They don't have an address or a hierarchy, but they do have one policy, no talking to the media. However, that did not stop intrepid reporter Gabriela Lati from somehow getting them to talk. Here is Anonymous, just for the lulls. It's the year 2008, and the Church of Scientology is receiving large numbers of unordered pizzas. Scientology ruins lives. People in black suits and funny face masks are walking the streets, holding big signs. They say, Project Shanology. Ask me why I'm wearing a mask. And knowledge is free. The crowd in front of the Scientology Center is growing, bigger and bigger. And it's not just in front of one Scientology Center, but many. Not just in one city, but worldwide. The people wearing face masks call themselves anonymous. They're protesting because they believe a lot of the things the Scientology Church stands for are wrong. Those unordered pizzas were just for the laugh. Or, as Anonymous say, just for the lulls. They call themselves Anonymous, and I'm trying to figure out what they're all about.
Anonymous is whatever you make of it. Uh, many people have different opinions on what Anonymous is, but uh, unfortunately no one is really in a position to say what it is and what it isn't, not even myself. It's, uh, I suppose if I were to give my own personal description of what Anonymous is, I suppose you could think of it like a flock of birds moving in a group. And how do you know that they're a group? Why well, they're just moving all in the same direction. And some, at any point, some could move away and some could join. But think of Anonymous as uh, mass hysteria with a purpose, uh, people from all walks of life united under one goal. This is Steve. Well, um, I guess you could call me a... Uh, I'm in business development, which is pretty much a fancy way of saying a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, I'm about as ordinary as you can possibly get. I've got a nine-to-five job, middle wage, that's about it. I'm 25 years old. Um, live in an apartment in, in the outer suburbs of Sydney, and that's about it. That's all there is really of significance to say. Oh, and then there's one more thing. I guess you could call me a... Uh, quote-unquote uh, spokesperson for Anonymous, despite the fact that we don't necessarily have them, but I'm well-versed in everything Anonymous, and hopefully I can shed any questions that you might have. We're sitting in a bar in central Sydney. Me. This uh, lovely Cooper's Pale Ale. And Dave. Although uh, that's not his real name. Dave contacted me via email. How he found out about me, I have no idea but I'm happy he did. My interest in Anonymous started when I was watching a YouTube clip. Hello. Leaders of Scientology, we are Anonymous. Over the years, we have been watching you. Two your YouTube clips. Hello, we are Anonymous. We have been watching you. Three. We are Anonymous. Okay. Four. Dear Fox News. We are Legion. It has come to We do not forgive. We do not forget. Expect us. Expect us. You should have expected us. Allow me to say quite simply, you completely missed the point of who and what we are. Then, I watched some media reports. They call themselves anonymous. They are hackers on steroids, treating the web like a real-life video game. Internet gathering known as anonymous. My authorities are going after anonymous. Like an internet hate machine. The so-called anonymous collective, which last year launched a series of digital attacks and support. Should we be worried that an unknown group of hackers has this kind of power? The digital frontier. Check their credit card data. Hackers on steroids. Anonymous. 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 <clears throat> This was all a bit too confusing. I had to make a phone call. Hello? Hi, it's me. Oh, hey, Gabby, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm okay. Um, you know how I always ask you questions about internet and stuff? Yeah. Well, do you know what Anonymous is? Where are you? Um, like, uh, 10 minutes from you. All right, we'll come over and we'll talk about it. Sam Hickman works in Sydney with public image security. He's one of those people I always call when I have a question about technology. Just like I thought, he also had an answer to my question, what is anonymous? And can I find one in Sydney? You you see them as... There's, there's two ways. There's one... Um, where they're seen as a terrorist group, 
and they're cyber terrorists and they're causing all sorts of problems. They're, you know, um, just all, all, all sorts of issues all over the internet. I think that that's, that's wrong. And then on the complete opposite side, they have the reports where they show them as being juvenile kids, just bored potheads at home looking for something to do. I think that's wrong too. I think they're somewhere in the middle. Um, they're not terrorists and they're not just kids looking for, looking for something to do on a Friday night. But why did some of the media reports call anonymous terrorists or hackers? Well, it could have something to do with the fact that anonymous are known for their DDoSing, distributed denial of service attacks. To simply describe DDoSing, imagine hundreds of people trying to get through one door at the same time. Impossible. That's what DDoSing does. But it does it to websites. When Anonymous believe a company or government is violating freedom of information or freedom of privacy, Anonymous sometimes DDoS their website. It can cause major problems and loss of money, which is exactly the purpose. To punish what they believe are wrongdoings. It's an attempt at cyber anarchy, I would say. Uh, an attempt to get information to be free. And I think that with what's happened in the last couple of years, we've seen uh, WikiLeaks grow from what really started out as just a small uh, one-man operation releasing documents to front-page news. There is no hiding information at this point, and trying to limit people's access to information is something that's going to be uh, less and less tolerated by the masses. And I think that that's what that's what this is a sign of. That you know, as, as we go into the future, people are going to start wanting to have access to everything and not being limited in any way. So where are they based? Like they are globally, they're everywhere, and at the same time, they're nowhere. Like you don't know where they are, you don't know who they are, but at the same time, you know that they're like, they're in the community. Um, you see it through the postering on the sidewalk, on the street signs, on um, through their protests that they have down at the Scientology Center and um, out front of some of the stores that they target. But um, yeah, no, they're definitely here. They're definitely in Sydney. Sam said. It would be a good idea for me to visit some of the IRC chat rooms, Internet Relay Chat. Anonymous is using IRC a lot. It's one of the oldest chat systems and is a place for anons to exchange ideas, discuss projects and upcoming protests. This is where it all starts. I decided to check it out. www.irc... Okay. Let's see. Hello? Yes? Hello. Boobs, boobs. I like them big, but not too big. <laughs> Check this out. www.bigboobs.com um, I'm not sure if this is the right place, but um, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you have boobs? Big boobs? They have to be big, like this. www.bigboobs. They have to be Lulz. big. Okay. It took me a while before I found a chat room where I was actually able to have a conversation with people about Anonymous. But even in that room, I had some difficulties with getting answers. Hello? Hello. Hi there. Welcome. Can we help you? Yes. I'm looking for some answers. I want to know more about Anonymous. Yes, well, it depends on what you want to know. And who you are. And why you want to know this information. Who do you work for? Are you a reporter? And how can we be sure that you're not lying? Yes, I am a journalist. And I'm very curious about this group. We're not a group. Not really a movement. I guess we're a network. I guess you're right, but you could be wrong. We're everyone. 
We're the barista who makes your coffee before you enter work. We're the bartender who makes your whiskey when you've left work. We're your boss, your mother, your best friend and worst enemy. We're everyone and we're no one. Okay. But we can't tell you more right now because you're not verified. I told you it was trolls. Stop being so paranoid. He's not troll. How do you know? Well, can you verify me then, please? So I can ask some more questions. What's troll, by the way? Lols, I can verify you. Send me an email from your job to a temporary email I'm setting up now. It will only be valid for 10 minutes. And make sure you include a recent piece of journalism you've done. To hang out in the IRC chat rooms was interesting. Like stepping into a foreign culture filled with new words and ways of speaking. Do you know what lols means? I do now. It's slang for lol, which is short for laugh out loud. It also became a part of my routine as soon as I entered a new IRC channel to quickly explain that I was not a troll. Because a troll, in case you didn't know, is a person who causes trouble online. After a few days, I mean weeks, I was finally verified. And then, one day, bingo. Hello. Hello. How's it going? I had someone on my Skype line. He was a... Well, this is exactly the problem. There's not really any such thing as a member. Right. He was a... An anonymous. I'm somebody who's part of the anonymous movement. How were you introduced to Anonymous? Well, mainly I was well, I was introduced in two ways really. It was by the um by the press mainly. Um I mean every time Anonymous does something there are always a lot of headlines about it. So I just stuck around after that to observe things that were happening. And one of the big movements that was taking place was the Internet Freedom Movement Project Skynet. Um which was basically it's it's very difficult to define that, but it was a broad um movement against attempts to regulate and censor what you can say online. And um, I, I thought that sounded like a very good cause, so I got involved in that. When you say involved, in what way did you get involved with it? Well, um, there was a particular group, again, all of these kind of very vague anonymous movements are divided into sort of groups of people who decide to do various different things. Um, and one of the operations that was taking place was the idea of having a worldwide protest Um, against a particular internet censorship law that was supposed to be coming in last year. It was actually defeated because of all the protesting. Um, And I decided that, well, I won't say where I live, but that uh, there hadn't been any mention of a protest where I live, so I thought I might try to set one up myself. So um, I started hanging around on their chat room and on their website to to see how you'd go about organising a protest yourself. And then most of the protests were actually called off because the uh, piece of the treaty as it was that was trying to be put forward was defeated before we had a chance to even protest about it. But one of the things that was taking place at the time was um, Operation Payback. So there were various different companies that had either cut off funds to WikiLeaks or uh, tried to shut down their web hosting or confiscate their domain names or, you know, there were various different moves that were made against WikiLeaks and uh, this movement was opposing those uh, attempts to censor it. So it again seemed to me like a sort of very general internet freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of information kind of movement and that's something that um, I feel very strongly about so I got involved in that as well and I've been involved in um, a lot of different operations since then with the same general group of people. 
I think one of the things you might have asked me on the on the IRC is actually it, it really is about sort of empowering individuals to do something about it. you know a lot of the time people will have a very strong political opinion about something they'll read something in the paper and they say well that's awful but I'm just an ordinary person I can't do anything about that you know I think anonymous gives individual people the power to actually feel like they're doing something about something they care about I think if 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 we can defeat the attempts by governments to censor the internet and stop people from talking freely on it, um, then I think the internet could really transform how ordinary people can be involved in um, in the running of their own countries and in, in how our, you know our civilization. I think it's gone past a point where anonymous could be stopped now. I think it's you know it's funny when they when they raid people when they investigate people they talk about finding the leaders of anonymous. Um, I just think it's very important to say that uh, Anonymous, I think, is now, there's too many people involved. And because there are no leaders, it means that if you want to stop Anonymous, you have to get every single person who's involved with it, or it'll keep going. It's uh, it's like the legend of Hydra. You cut off one head, three more heads grow where the, the first head used to be. Um, you can't cut the head off a snake when the snake doesn't have a head. But was Anonymous the snake or the head? Or both. The deeper I went down the anonymous rabbit hole, the more I started to understand this... Uh, not a group, not really a movement, with no leaders, no names, and strong political opinions. Not to mention the lulls. Will government and big companies ever enter a conversation with a flock of birds? An anonymous force? What is a snake if it doesn't have a head? Then, I got an email. I understand you need an anon to interview. I'll see you at 6.10 on the second floor. Black jacket, laptop on table. Best regards, anon. Why is it so important to actually be anonymous? Right, the, it really depends on who you ask. My personal opinion, and again I stress that this is my personal opinion, is that when you're anonymous you can you can say anything, you can do anything without any fear of repercussion. Now, while this could be interpreted as a possible opening to exploit that to do selfish or evil things, you have to understand that Anonymous doesn't really want to, you know, cause havoc unless they've really got a, a reason to order, whether it's to punish whoever the target is. But it's also, the, being anonymous is also a safety measure. Anonymous being anonymous, they're able to get away with a lot more things. They're a lot. Of, they're able to. They're able to. Uh, how should I put it? Um, they're able to avoid litigation. Because. Let's let's face it. Um, they're, they're, if you cover your tracks online, you're less likely to be found. Of course, as. As a recent incident proved, uh, there's no real way that you can be anonymous online. Like. For example, with, uh, there was another recent operation called Operation Titstorm. Operation Titstorm was a result of the Australian federal government's proposed extension of internet censorship. Internet censorship overall is not appreciated by Anonymous. And so, the government's websites were hacked and bombarded with pornographic images. Hence the name Operation Titstorm. Where Anonymous, uh, or rather a splinter cell of Anonymous. Let, sorry, let me just go off on a tangent for a second here. Um, one action perpetrated by one 
cell of Anonymous isn't necessarily supported by another cell. So this, is go- this goes back to the uh, birds moving as a flock analogy. Sometimes people will spread out into a different into a different project or just fizzle away entirely. That's, that's the nature of Anonymous in itself. It's forever growing, forever changing. But why why do we need the government to tell us what we can and cannot watch? I mean, even if it's legal. And as a result, a couple of people were actually found to have been involved, whether they did not cover their tracks properly or it was just a stroke of bad luck remains to be seen. But they were caught, fined $550, and uh, in a particularly screwed-up fashion, uh, they're now technically considered as terrorists, which is... Um, you know, if, if hacking a government website with harmless messages is uh, akin to blowing yourself up and killing 200 people, then uh, obviously the uh, obviously the law system's a bit skewed. Oh, I thought the attacks were entirely irresponsible. Abul Rizvi, Deputy Secretary of Digital Economy and Services at the Department of Broadband Communications and the Digital Economy, the target of Operation Titstorm. When the attacks took place... They did reduce the responsiveness of our department's website to legitimate visitors. Some users would have experienced extended periods of waiting for web pages to resolve or render to a request. External email to and from the department was delayed. The department staff who needed to use the internet experienced delays in accessing internal websites. Essentially, it made the work of government a bit slower and more difficult. There are legitimate ways of protesting about government policy, and that is fine, and people should use those legitimate ways. This is not a legitimate way. Do you have any suggestions of any other forms of more acceptable types of protests? Well, people could simply write to the newspapers, make commentary in the in, in the media. Um, there are many traditional ways in which people uh, uh, express their views about uh, various aspects of government policy that have been around for um, for many, many years. So, sorry, but what, what was the original question? I've completely lost my track. The original question was, why is it so important to be anonymous? And if an anon decides to go public with their real name, what happens? When hanging out in chat rooms, I often came across the name Barrett Brown. His name was also, very often, in the same sentence as the word Name fag. Name fag. Name fag. Name fag. It's considered bad manners for anons to reveal their name. So why did Barrett Brown do it? Well, I came to Anonymous actively during Op Tunisia, and at the time I'd already been running my own group called Project PM, which I run under my own name, and which which includes a lot of journalists and scientists and activists and other people who were interested in uh, using the internet in new ways by which to fight corruption and by which to you know, engage in philanthropy and activism uh, using the best tools available. And so I joined the IRC under my own name and uh, sort of used my status as a journalist who's well known in, in certain circles to attract uh, more talent to the efforts and to alert journalists to what was going on. That's stuff I couldn't do if I was, you know, going under some code name or calling myself anonymous. It just it wouldn't work that way. So, I mean, my intent is entirely directed towards getting things done and to the extent that my name is necessary to put everything I can into it, then I really don't have any, I don't care at all about the traditions or the rules that other people may have. Uh, most of the people who have a problem with that are really more interested in Anonymous being a mysterious secret club and, and following these these rules that really, I don't think anyone was really authorized to write to begin with. 
they tend to be less interested in, in actually getting things done. So I'm not particularly concerned with their take on that. So you told me this is going to be your last interview as Anonymous. Why? Uh, there's a couple reasons. Uh, my responsibilities have grown quite a bit in so much as dealing with the media, and then I'm left to write press releases and talk to all the reporters and, and put out our position. And it basically puts me in the crossfire to a great extent, which is really distracting. And the other reason, which is kind of similar to that, is that you know what, our investigation into the persona management issue, the deployments of fake internet personas by the military and by other institutions has sort of expanded quite a bit and, and it's become evident this is a major problem. As such, uh, Operation Metal Gear, which I first launched under Anonymous. Operation Metal Gear is trying to get to the bottom of some leaked emails. These emails suggest that there are fake cyber personalities out there, people working for governments worldwide whose mission is to identify anonymous personalities online personalities such as anonymous. The Pentagon asked the uh, federal authorities, uh, including the FBI, I believe, to investigate us during our efforts on behalf of uh, Bradley Manning, the soldier that was being held in, you know, sort of 24-hour suicide watch, sort of a punishment before a trial situation. And I noted publicly that we were going to perform a number of unspecified measures against some of those responsible for his condition, including the spokesman of the Pentagon. And I think they didn't take that very well and uh, launched a probe. Now, I wish they had just actually just called me and asked me, and I would explain to them that everything we were planning to do was entirely illegal, uh, despite what they may have heard. But of course, that's not their policy. They prefer to spend lots of money and time figuring out what I could have showed them, you know, in about 10 minutes. It's gotten to the point where I need to be able to work with a lot of journalists and activist groups and NGOs on this. Um, in a coordinated effort, and that's something that I have that I can't really do as well if I'm still associated with Anonymous. So, because it's this operation is so important to me and, and a lot of the others I'm working with, I've decided that I need to avoid the drama and the constant internal warfare that goes on in Anonymous and simply bring this effort out into the public, make it a, a crowdsourced investigation. You know, so my own goals, you know, involving activism and all that just aren't really compatible with me continuing as someone who's heavily involved in Anonymous. 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 The internal warfare within Anonymous was something I also talked to Gabriella Coleman about. Gabriella is an assistant professor in the Department of Media, Culture and Communications at New York University. She has been researching Anonymous. There was an operator who basically attacked their own servers, their main server, Anonops, and it no longer is, it's a ghost town. Now it's a ghost town because it's been compromised and he released the IP addresses of a number of participants. And so this has been described in the media as a kind of civil war. There, there is always in these groups a lot of kind of internal drama and politics. And this is not unique to Anonymous. This is kind of across the board with these virtual groups and organization. But this is interesting because this one person has basically disabled their place of communication organization, IRC. However, and this is the interesting thing about Anonymous, is just because one person takes down one of their kind of critical uh, pieces of their infrastructure, others will erect another one, in a sense. 
And so this is exactly what's happening right now. Others are putting up another IRC network. And it's an interesting moment because it's a kind of moment of clarification about what this network is about and what their politics should be. So how do you think the future looks? And do you think Anonymous will grow? Well, if you asked me that two years ago, I would have said, no, I don't think so. But I look at, I look at Anon now. I look at it with a sense of great admiration. I look at Anon as a, a force that's going to gain even more traction in the coming years. It's going to, as people start to realise that you know, it's not the governments that hold the power; it's actually the people. If they put their minds to it, I believe that as that continues, Anon is going to become a lot more, uh, a lot more of a of a prominent force to be reckoned with. If you, yeah, if you don't, if you don't like what Anon does, that's fine. Just stay out of our way. So, what are you going to do now when we finish this conversation? I'm going to finish this uh, lovely Cooper's Pale Ale. Um, I don't know. Probably go home, cook myself a, cook myself a nice meal, and uh, go to work tomorrow. Yeah, like I said, I'm about as ordinary as they come. <laughs> Sorry if you're hoping for a more interesting response. As I walk home from the bar, I can't help but look a little more closely at the people I walk past. That man in the corner over there, who's smoking a cigarette, is he anonymous? Or is he waiting for an anonymous? How about that woman who's running to catch the bus now? Is she anonymous? Or the bus driver? Or what about my neighbor, who always plays the piano? Is he? I got a text message. I look at my phone. In green letters from an anonymous number, it says, Anonymous is watching. That was Anonymous, Just for the Lulls, by Gabriella Lati and engineered by Stephen Tilley for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's 360 Documentaries. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Questions, comments, rants, and raves, anonymous or otherwise, can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Recording someone without telling them is often against the law. And where it isn't unlawful, it certainly begs questions of honesty and ethics. For one radio producer, David Weinberg, secretly recording people started out as sort of a hobby, a possible way to break into, of all things, public radio. But then it mutated into an obsession. And finally, in an odd twist of fate, this anonymous act became David's salvation. At 23, I didn't have a lot going for myself. I'd been kicked out of college and was living in Colorado delivering pizzas. But while on the job one day, I heard a story on the car radio. It was about a man who hated his job and quit it to travel the country interviewing strangers with a tape recorder. It was then and there that I decided that was what I wanted to do. Go on adventures and make radio stories about my adventures. So I quit my job and bought a mini-disc recorder. The only hitch in this plan was that the idea of actually interviewing people terrified me. 
I would get this ball in the pit of my stomach, and my chest would tighten up at the thought of trying to approach strangers with a mic. I couldn't even work up the courage to interview people I knew. So the solution I came up with was to wear a wire and record in secret. Testing. One, two, testing. It became a part of my morning ritual. After brushing my teeth and getting dressed, I would thread a microphone cable through a hole I'd cut in my pants pocket and clip a tiny mic to the inside of my shirt just above the third button for my collar. My original plan was to wear the wire for a couple weeks and use the tape to make my first story. I didn't know exactly what the story would be, but I had faith that it would come, and I loved recording. Do I have some? I think, is this yours? Do you want a bud? Yes. This is one of the very first recordings I made. I was on a camping trip with some friends. Only after several beers was I unafraid to tell my friends about the mic. In fact, I went around like a kid with a new toy, showing everyone my recorder and making them put the headphones on. Listen, this is the coolest thing in the world. Put these on. Isn't that cool? It's a live recording of what's happening right now. Right now? Yeah. And so I just kept recording. Week after week, month after month. It became a compulsion, and I couldn't stop. I wore the wire nearly every day for over three years. I made a jester. Who did, who did I make I recorded bar fights in small towns. Speak up! Easy, easy. I recorded countless street musicians. And I went to Alaska and worked on a boat and recorded this guy's reaction to hearing about the Northern Lights for the first time. When they told me that shit, I'm like, what the fuck you mean the lights be dancing? Yeah. 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 This shit and dancing, I'm like, oh shit. And the hippie kid who assured him that it was magic by telling him about the time that he kissed a girl under its vortex. So we kiss, and bam, there's the bolt of line, quarter inch. Because we get just close enough, and it would go pow. And we're like, whoa, no way. And we look up, and the lights are... Oh, look, 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 look. look. After quitting my job as a pizza delivery man, I went to New York, where I started working at a perfume factory in Queens. Every morning, I would get up before dawn, set up my recorder, and take a bus and two trains, then walk half an hour to the factory. Inside the factory were long tables filled with little mountains of perfume samples and small glass vials. Next to each pile were stacks of glossy cardstock with a picture of Britney Spears on them. Lined up on both sides of the table were Haitian women who spent all day clipping the vials to the cards. Their hands moved so quickly it was like watching a movie on Fast Forward. My job was to stand at the end of the table and put the samples into boxes, then put those boxes into larger boxes and stack them onto pallets. The work was dull and repetitive, but I got along with everyone, and the Haitian women would playfully tease me about being the only white guy. But the chemicals at the factory made me smell really, really bad. After a couple days, the family I was living with asked me to leave, so I started sleeping under a tree in a secluded area of Central Park. This was during the 2004 Republican National Convention, and the city was packed with people. After my shift at the factory, I would walk around recording protesters. There was an energy to all of it that I found thrilling, and I decided this was the ideal tape to use for my first story. This system must be overthrown, or absolutely nothing fundamental change. I had this grand vision of a story about the factory and the protesters of my whole life, and it kept growing with everything new that I saw and heard. 
It was like some big, fat, sprawling Proust novel. I knew it was all connected in some way. I just wasn't sure how. The truth was, the story was a complete mess. Nearly all my tape was unusable. The mic wasn't in close enough to people's mouths. There was too much background noise. It sounded terrible. And the story itself didn't make any sense. But even though I knew the recordings I was making were useless, I couldn't stop. I only stayed in New York for a couple weeks before deciding to use the money I had saved up to leave the country and hitchhike around Europe. It seemed like going to Europe might give me the arc that the big radio story of my life needed. Plus, maybe in a foreign land, I'd muster up the courage to actually stick a microphone in people's faces. I was going with my best friend, Mark. Mark and I became instant friends from the moment we met on a high school field trip. We were staying in a fancy hotel that wouldn't allow us to have pizza delivered, so we smuggled one into the hotel inside a suitcase and stayed up all night in our room listening to records. I was in awe of Mark's encyclopedic knowledge of music. I'd never heard of any of the bands he played for me, but I loved them all because he did. From then on, we were inseparable. Klaus? And you? Uh, my name's Mark. Uh-huh. And I'm David. You're from England? Uh, United States. I recorded all the people that picked us up in Europe. There was the French candy salesman, the Danish truck driver, a German family on their way to a birthday party for a friend of their eight-year-old son who sat next to me and tried to explain in German the rules of the video game he was playing on his Game Boy. I spent hours standing motionless so my shirt wouldn't rub up against the mic while I recorded street musicians and bands in smoky Eastern European bars. After six weeks, I was completely broke, so I had no choice but to go back to Colorado and move into my parents' basement and take a job waiting tables at a nearby Applebee's. While thumbing through the employee handbook, I discovered that my official title was Apple Buddy. That's when the depression set in. And I dealt with it by recording more and more. It was a way for me to feel like I had control over my life. As I found myself collecting all this tape, I started to read about other people who obsessively collect things. One article I read said that the deeper motivation of some collectors may be to gain greater control of a larger world that seems out of control. The article goes on to cite a passage from Philip Bloom, who wrote a book on collectors. He described collecting as a philosophical project that attempts to make sense of the multiplicity and chaos of the world, and perhaps even to find in it a hidden meaning. For me, it was like the mic was some sort of lifeline. When I was recording, I wasn't some loser living in his parents' basement working a crappy job. I was a documentarian. Except I wasn't a documentarian. I'd never even done a single interview. I had no idea how to edit tape. I didn't even own a computer. All I knew how to do was press record. Hey, Zoom, this afternoon. Fine, thanks. Can I get you uh, some iced tea or some lemonade or anything to start off with? Uh, what is it, raspberry lemonade? Raspberry lemonade? Sure. Sure. My only friend at Applebee's was a meth addict named Jeremy. After work, I would go over to his apartment and drink beer and play video games while he and his friends smoked meth. One night, I was sitting on Jeremy's couch, and I noticed a tiny notebook on the coffee table. Inside, someone had drawn a series of intricate little boxes with numbers inside them and a name next to each box. 
Jeremy was using the notebook to keep track of his scores in Mario Golf, a video game he seemed to be playing day and night. There were pages and pages of scores, all done with the precision of someone who was very, very high. Then I came to a page with a diary entry in the same handwriting. The first line read, I need to get my life back together. Then there was a to-do list. It read, get clean, sell Jeep, use money to go to college. The last item on the list was make dad proud. I turned the page, and there, in bold, dark lines, the Mario golf scores picked up where they had left off. I felt like I was more similar to Jeremy than I wanted to admit. We'd both lost control of our lives, and instead of doing something about it, he was keeping a notebook, and I was wearing a wire. After that day, I never went back to Jeremy's, but I did keep recording. There were only a few people in my life that knew about my wire. One of them was my best friend, Mark. After we got back from our trip to Europe together, he moved to Seattle to make a record with his band, and I became an Apple buddy. Not long after I found Jeremy's notebook, I quit my job at Applebee's and moved to Seattle. One night, I was hanging out with Mark at a bar when he told me that it made him uncomfortable that I was recording him all the time. Naturally, I was recording him while he was explaining why he didn't like being recorded. It's a little hard to hear in this tape, but he says it's not that he's afraid he'll say something he will later regret. He says life is fleeting, and I say, doesn't that create a desire in you to record everything? Mark responds, I like living my life as though it's fleeting. And then he says that posterity is only good in certain doses. I was drunk during this conversation, and I didn't fully appreciate what Mark was saying, and I just went on recording him against his will. In fact, I completely forgot about this conversation until two years later when Mark passed away. After a year of living in Seattle, I moved to New Orleans, and the following summer, Mark came to visit. On his last night in town, Mark drowned in the Mississippi River. My friend Danny and I were with him when it happened. The three of us had grown up together. The day after Mark died, they put his picture on the front page of the newspaper. His body still hadn't been found, and part of me thought that maybe he was still alive, wandering the banks of the Mississippi somewhere downriver. Everywhere I went that day, I kept seeing Mark looking at me through the window of the newspaper machines, and for a split second, I would think it was him alive standing on the street corner. Whenever I think of Mark, it's that photograph of him that I picture first in my mind. It's so burned into my brain that I can't help but see that image when I think of him. It's the same way with my recordings of Mark. As I get older, my memories of him start to fade, but I keep listening to these totally unremarkable moments that suddenly have weight to them. And I'm afraid this is one of the reasons Mark didn't want me to record him in the first place. After the funeral, I told Mark's family that I would gather up all my recordings of him. And for the first time, I started listening to a lot of the tape I had of Mark. Going through hundreds of hours of recordings, I understand now what Mark meant when he said that posterity is only good in small doses. At times, this compulsion to go through all my tape and catalog it makes me feel like a character in some fable about the perils of holding on to the past, where my punishment 
is that I'm forced to relive hours upon hours of my own boring life. What's in the crab rangoon? Like this recording of Mark and I ordering food in a Chinese restaurant. If I get something small, can you spot me? Yeah. All right, I'm going to get a small hot and sour soup and then um, and then onion rings. I know that sounds weird, but that's what okay. I'm getting. I know that it's moments like this one that Mark would not want to be remembered by. If he got to pick which of his recordings would make up his legacy, I'm not sure which ones he would choose. Maybe a song from the last record he made with his band. Maybe an episode from his college radio show. He would want it to be something he was proud of. Definitely not the time he ordered onion rings in a Chinese restaurant. But at the same time, if all that existed of Mark on tape were the moments he chose, there would be something missing. I keep returning to these unremarkable moments precisely because I get to experience Mark the way he would be if we were just hanging out, which is what I miss most about our friendship. To this day, I haven't listened to all the tape I have, but slowly I'm going through it, and every once in a while, I come across a recording of Mark that I've never heard before. And it's like he's there in the room with me, just sitting and talking about nothing special. And in those moments, the recordings don't feel like such a failure after all. <laughs> One thing I forgot to tell you about when we were busking, like we bought this sweatshirt the night before, like at this place in Lake George, it was outside on the bargain yeah. rack for like five dollars. And it said, Home Alone with a monster. The wire was produced by David Weinberg for Wiretap from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. David can now be heard using his own name and recording people with their permission for Marketplace. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. This episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. <laughs>